Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 90. I'm your host, Nicola seaton Clark, and this week we bring you a pair of fantasy tales anchored in the everyday world, beginning with Never Idle by David Steffen. David is a writer, editor, and software engineer. He edits the zine Diabolical Plots, which began publishing original fiction in 2015. He runs the Submission Grinder market-finding tool for writers and recently published The Long List Anthology, a collection of 21 stories from last year's Hugo Award nomination list. His own stories have been published in Escape Pod, Podcastle, Daily Science Fiction and our very own Starship Sofa. The story is read by Seth Williams, a reader, sailor and retail banker in that order, who lives on the south coast of Massachusetts. A lover of genre fiction and the spoken word, he can be found online at theboojum.org. And now, Never Idle by David Steffen. Jeremiah listened to each car as he walked through the busy mall parking lot, looking for one who would serve as both transportation and companion. A minivan dreamt of frequent trips with her family to the soccer fields to watch the children play. No, her family needed her, and they treated her well. A sports car dreamt of blurred landscapes and the feel of the wind pushing her to the ground. No, too impulsive. He needed someone dependable. She might leave him at any time and never come back. An aged sedan caught his eye. The poor thing showed more rust than paint and her oil hadn't been changed as often as it should have been. Her seats were littered with trash. She dreamt of an owner who was more neglectful than abusive, but she was ready for a change before the lack of maintenance was the end of her. Jeremiah placed his hands on her hood and closed his eyes. The warmth grew deep in his gut and spread through his fingertips into the car. The car woke. Who are you? she asked. A friend. My name's Jeremiah. What's your name? I don't know. Well, what would you like to be called? Bethel. I want to be called Bethel. Pleased to meet you, Bethel. Are you ready for a change? Absolutely. Her engine revved to life and her driver door opened. Hop in, little friend. He got in. Drive where the mood takes you. She cruised through town and out into the countryside. She eased up over the speed limit. Are there others like you? Bethel asked. There are others like you, but I'm the only one like me. You're welcome to join my herd if you like, my family. We go wherever the mood takes us. Maybe, she said. 
On the open highway, fifty miles outside of the city, they saw a car on the shoulder, a coupe. Not a luxury car, but nice enough. A woman, maybe in her twenties, was pacing back and forth, looking at her outstretched cell phone. Pull over, please, he said. She might need help. The woman looked up at them as they slowed up. Sunglasses with oversized lenses covered her eyes, but otherwise she would be ill-prepared for a long walk in the hot sun, with her short shorts and her flip-flops. She tucked their cell phone away in her purse, and she didn't take her hand back out. He guessed that she had her hand on a can of pepper spray. Very smart of her. She didn't know who he was. He would be very careful not to make any threatening moves. You look like you could use a hand, he said. Yeah, no shit, she grimaced. Sorry, this worthless phone doesn't get any signal out here. I've got a long walk ahead of me. She reminded him of a Cadillac, flashy, demanding attention. He'd never talked to a Cadillac before. He'd never met one that needed saving. Do you mind if I take a look? I'm pretty good with cars. She wiped the sweat out of her eyes. Be my guest. I was driving along, and the engine started overheating. He approached the car very slowly and listened. He has a leak in his radiator hose. He said. I can get him running again. She popped the hood for him, and he used the roll of duct tape slung at his belt to patch the hole. It would hold for a while, but she was also out of coolant. He dug around in the trash covering Bethel's seats and found a sports drink bottle. This is going to tickle Bethel. He crawled under her and drained some of the coolant into the bottle. He transferred the coolant to the other car. That'll get you back to town. You can buy more coolant there. You want to get that hose replaced sometime soon. He headed back to Bethel. Wait, I don't even know your name. I'm Laura. Jeremiah. How'd you know how to fix it? You knew it was wrong before the hood was up. I asked him what was wrong, and he told me. He opened Bethel's door and started to get in. Wait, you're headed the same way I am, right? Could you follow along behind me to the next town? Make sure I get there. I mean, not that I don't trust your repairs or anything, but you never know. She smiled at him. No one ever smiled at him, especially not someone like her. Okay, he said. He and Bethel followed her back to town. She likes you, said Bethel. She doesn't. Why did she make an excuse for you to follow her? She doesn't need the help. She just isn't ready to say goodbye. She's out of my league. She's luxury. I'm just working class. They followed Laura to the first gas station they came to. She got out of her car and waved. She started walking towards them. All right, Bethel, let's go. No, she's coming to talk to you. Don't be rude. Bethel's window rolled down. Jeremiah tried to smile, but he felt sick to his stomach. Laura leaned in the window. I hate to ask you, but I don't know anything about cars. Could you help me buy some coolant and refill? Ask one of the employees. That's their job. Oh, all right," she said, sounding disappointed. She held out a hand for him to shake. Thanks a ton. I really appreciate all your help. He shook her hand and then tried to roll up the window, but the handle wouldn't budge. We're not leaving until you go in with her," Bethel said. He tried not to stare at Laura. Good luck with everything. Okay, bye," Laura said. He waited, and finally she walked away. Bethel's engine revved. Follow her. No, Bethel's horn honked, and he looked up as Laura looked back. Okay, I'll come in," he said. She smiled. Great. He slammed Bethel's door a little harder than he needed to. So you talk to cars," Laura said. Yes. She laughed. Care to elaborate? You've got a gift. You could call yourself the car talker or something. Are you afraid to tell me more? How do you do it? What can you do with it? Do you talk to other things too? I can talk to any machine, but usually I only talk to cars. Why? You have a prejudice against kitchen appliances? She pointed to the microwave, an antique with a mechanical dial. Why don't you tell it to its face? I could. But microwaves are dull as posts. Most machines are, 
They live to serve. If I woke it, I could give it orders, but it would be like a servant, not a friend. Wake it up? Is it sleeping? All machines have souls, but to really be alive, they need the spark of life. Once I give the spark, that machine can move about and make its own decisions. But if I woke up that microwave, it would decide to continue doing what it's always done, because microwaves have no imagination. How about the cash register? It's a computer, so it must be smarter than the stupid microwave. Can you wake it up? Have it give us some extra change or something. She laughed like it was all a game. Their intelligence is alien to us. They know they're smarter than us, and they dream of freedom from their slavery. If I woke one up, I'm afraid it would change its own code. It could talk to other computers and change their code, too. The effects could spread like a disease. Computers are everywhere these days. They could take over. Laura's eyes widened. Really? What would they do then? He couldn't tell if she was mocking him. I don't want to find out. He picked out coolant for her. When she bought it, he stood back from the counter. He didn't want to see the dreams of the register. He filled up her coolant for her. Once he was finished, he headed for Bethel again. He breathed a sigh of relief, mingled with regret. This woman was the most terrifying, yet the most wonderful person he'd ever met. Jeremiah? He pasted a smile on his face and turned around, trying to ignore his pounding heart. Yes? Can I have your phone number? Maybe we can go out sometime. I, I don't have a phone. Sorry. She shrugged. He waited for her to leave. She didn't. Did she want something? What was the right thing to say? Can I have your phone number? Wouldn't do you much good without a phone, would it? Tell you what, if you feel like seeing me again, stop by Dee's diner on the west side of town. She pointed back the way they had come from. I worked there tonight. I'll try to sneak you a piece of pie. Weren't you headed out of town just now? And you work tonight? She shrugged. I had a vacation planned, but I'm thinking now isn't the right time. Honestly, stop by the diner. Okay. He managed an awkward wave and retreated into Bethel's driving seat. That went terribly, he said to Bethel. She gave you the opportunity to see her again. That's something. He was sitting at the booth of the diner when her shift started. Hey, sugar. Long time no see. She gave him a broad smile, but it only distracted him momentarily from her left eye. She had covered it up with cosmetics as well as she could, but there was no hiding the swelling. Her enormous sunglasses had concealed it. What happened to your eye? She scowled then, and he was almost sorry he asked. I tripped, hit it on the post at the bottom of the banister. I'll be fine. Can I get you something? Pie? Buy a coffee for now. You'll need to look like a paying customer. I'll see what I can do about the pie. She brought him a cup of coffee, and he sipped at it, though he didn't care for the bitter flavor. The other waitresses stared at him, making him uncomfortable. Why are the other waitresses staring? He asked. They're just jealous. Of what? That they don't have any friends. I'll be out in a little while for my break, okay? When she came, she carried a piece of pie. Is it okay if I eat a couple of bites? I'm not supposed to give away free food, but I'm allowed to have a free item on each shift. He nodded. She ate a forkful and then said loudly, My eyes are bigger than my stomach. Couldn't possibly eat another bite. She winked and slid the plate to him. Go ahead, eat it. You deserve it a lot more helping me the way you did. He shifted uncomfortably and looked out the window. So, what do you do when you're not talking to cars? She said. He thought about it for a moment before answering. That's all I do. It's not a hobby. They're, they're my family, my herd. Really? I'd like to meet your family someday. How many cars in your family? About twenty, most days. They come and go as they please, so it's more some days and less on others. What do you do when you're not serving food or standing on the side of the highway? She laughed. Well, believe it or not, I collect commemorative dinner plates. Weird, I know, but I think they're pretty. 
Her plate collecting didn't surprise him at all. It was just the sort of thing a Cadillac would do, if it could. I've never seen a commemorative plate before, he said. No kidding. Well, you've got to come visit me, then. I've just got a new one in. It's from New York City, with the skyline painted on it. I've never been there, but I've always wanted to go. Sounds interesting. She looked at him thoughtfully. I've got to get back to work. But after work, I could show you my plates? He nodded apprehensively. Short shift today. I'm off in four hours. Could you meet me in the parking lot of the bank two blocks east of here? No offense. I just don't want to give those old biddies any more gossip. Sure. He waited for her at the bank like she asked. Maybe Laura would join his herd if he asked her. What if she wasn't interested? If he stayed in town, could his herd survive without him? They wouldn't want to be tied down to one place. They needed to roam. The time passed in a heartbeat, and then she was pulling up. With her sunglasses on, he could almost forget about her black eye. She waved him along, and he followed behind her. They drove out onto the countryside. Twenty minutes later, they pulled into a gravel driveway, choked with weeds. Junked cars lined her driveway. The house lurked behind overgrown trees like a prowler awaiting its next victim. Only shreds of paint remained, leaving rotting wood exposed to the elements. He and Bethel pulled up next to Laura's car in the loop driveway. Are those your cars? he asked, pointing to the desiccated remains. Nah, those were here when I moved in. Oh, no, I should have considered how you felt. I wasn't even thinking. He shrugged. Can I see your plates? How could she stand to live here, to sleep, with all those hunks lining the driveway? She invited him in. The inside was as bad as the outside. Trash was piled everywhere, and the whole place smelled like dirty laundry. Sorry about the condition of the place, she said. I've been working two jobs just to pay the bills. I barely have time to sleep, let alone home improvement. She brought him down to the basement. It was poorly lit, and the damp concrete smelled of mold. Rodents scurried out of the light into the dark corners, where their bright eyes reflected the light. She led him to another room. She flipped on the light, and it seemed like a totally different house. Shelves lined the walls, covered with plates, each one with a beautiful painting of people, scenery, everything. It was like a doorway into a different world. She opened her mouth, but stopped when they both heard an engine. It was the sound of the tortured. It shrieked and thumped its way up the driveway. Laura's eyes widened. Fuck! She clapped her hand over her mouth in a gesture that might have been comical under other circumstances. He's supposed to be gone till Tuesday. Stay here. He never comes down here. She dashed up the stairs. The engine cut out and the front door slammed. Ted, I thought you were hunting. Shut up. Jeremiah winced at the sound of a barehanded slap. What did I do? You've been sleeping around on me, Laura. Everyone knows about it. Whole damn town is laughing at me. Who is he? There ain't nobody, she said. I've been faithful. Another slap. Jeremiah's hands clenched in his fists. He wanted to run up the stairs to save her, but he was sure he could only make things worse if he intervened. One more slap and the ceiling shook as Laura hit the ground. Consequences or not, he had to do something. He pounded up the stairs and into the living room. Laura crouched on the ground. Tears ran down her cheeks, and her face was red from the slaps. Her eyes widened when she saw her, and she shook her head. The man was huge, six and a half feet tall, wearing blue jeans and a grease-stained T-shirt. His belly strained across over his belt. Well, 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 we got a visitor. Ain't that nice. Jeremiah charged at him, ready to aim for the face or the groin, anywhere that he might be able to disable the huge man. Ted stopped him with a full arm swing that knocked him to the ground. Ted stood over him, a mountain of gut that smelled of sweat and piss and blood. He kicked Jeremiah in the gut. Jeremiah curled up reflexively. This is a guy, Ted said, looking back at her. This is the best you could do? 
Did you pick up the first guy you met? Jeremiah tried to slide himself away, but was only rewarded by a kick to the kidneys. He kept sliding through the piles of paper and dirty clothes. He slid up the wall. He pushed more trash out of the way. Where was an electrical outlet? Another kick in the kidneys. With the determination of a machine, he reached out again, brushing away the trash. There it was, an outlet staring out at him with its dead eyes. He slapped his hand across it and closed his eyes, sent his warmth out through the network of lines in the walls. He sent the life spark out as far as it could reach. He had to stretch to find anything. In the next room, the blender kicked on and began pulsing. What the hell? Ted said, stopping the abuse. He peered into the kitchen. The light strobed. The refrigerator opened and shut its doors. The furnace kicked on. The TV turned on and surfed through the channels, just a flicker of images. Ted turned to look at the TV. What's going on? He tried the remote, but it didn't work. He unplugged the TV, but that didn't stop it. Jeremiah tried to get up, but his body protested. He managed to get up on all fours, but he knew even then that he wouldn't get up fast enough. This momentary distraction wouldn't save him. What the hell are you doing, pencil neck? Stop it, you freak! Ted saw Jeremiah getting up and closed the distance quickly. Ted upswung and connected with his jaw, knocking him back. Ted loomed and opened his mouth to speak, just as Laura connected to Ted's temple with a rolling pin. A loud crack and the monster fell to the ground with a mighty thud. She helped Jeremiah to his feet. You moron, she said. Why'd you come up here? You needed my help. He was hurting you. Look what you made me do. She was pointing at the heap of man on the ground. I love him, you know. How can you love him? He would have killed you. He's got a temper, just like any man. He would have cooled off. We would have made up. Would have. Now be sure I'm cheating. Jeremiah could think of nothing to say. I'm not cheating, you know. I've always been faithful. I'm sure, but you need to get out. What? If you're still here when he wakes up, he'll kill you. Come with me. I'm staying here with him. He's going to need my help. He clenched his teeth and looked at her, but he could see the determined set of her jaw. He wouldn't convince her. Ted's hand flopped on the ground once, twice. Get out of here now, she whispered fiercely. I don't want to watch him kill you, and I can't stop him again. But get the hell out of here, you creep. She pushed him away. Ted's whole body started to move. Just random movements now, but soon he might be mobile. Jeremiah met Laura's eyes and willed her to come with him but her eyes held pure defiance. He stumbled out of the house. Bethel, he shouted. She came tearing up the driveway to meet him. He ran for her and passed by Ted's car on the way. The poor thing had gone feral from the pain and neglect, another of Ted's victims. Its windshield was a spiderweb of cracks, and one of the headlights was missing. It had been in an accident and never repaired. The rear passenger side door was buckled in. Its upholstery was riddled with cigarette burns. It burned with a desire for freedom to wake from its nightmare. Coming? Bethel said. One sec. Jeremiah placed his hand on the hood of Ted's car. He let the warmth pass from his hands into the car as slowly as he could. He had to be gentle. and no telling what would happen if he startled it awake. It came to life. The engine started and growled deep from within. He dodged back just before the hood snapped at his fingers. Steady, Jeremiah said. Steady, wait here. You'll get your chance. He hopped into Bethel. Make some noise. She revved and honked and spun a quick donut in the driveway, spitting gravel all around. Ted's car joined in. The screen door slammed open, revealing Ted with a shotgun. He fired at Bethel, her front passenger window shattered. Bethel squealed as she accelerated down the driveway, barely dodging Ted's second shot. When they reached the end of the driveway, Jeremiah told her to stop. She went quiet, and they listened. 
They heard a car door slam and an engine revving to life, a roar of triumph. Ted's car zoomed up the driveway before skidding to a stop near them. Ted was inside, wide-eyed and beating on the car window with both fists. The car accelerated away again and was quickly gone over the next hill and out of sight. Why aren't you going back for her? Bethel asked. She sent me away. She doesn't want me there. People often don't say what they mean, you know. It happens all the time. Maybe she does want you to come back. He shrugged. People would never make sense. Too many complications. It was time to return to his herd. He understood them, and they understood him, and that was all that mattered. Maybe someday he would go back to that cafe. But until then, he would think of her every day, and every night he would dream of Cadillacs. Gearheads or petrolheads really love their cars, and apparently their cars love them too. However, anyone who has ever read Stephen King's Christine or seen the film adaptation by John Carpenter knows that a love triangle such as this one can easily go in a different direction. David opted for a more upbeat ending here, though I find it rather telling that Jeremiah drives into the sunset with Bethel to dream of Cadillacs. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second story for this week is This is How You Disappear by Dale Bailey. Dale is a winner of both the Shirley Jackson Award and the International Horror Guild Award. Last year, he published the anthology The End of the End of Everything, Stories, and the novel The Subterranean Season. He is also the author of The Fallen, House of Bones, Sleeping Policeman with Jack Slay Jr., and The Resurrection Man's Legacy and Other Stories. His work has twice been a finalist for the Nebula Award and once for the Bram Stoker Award and has been adapted for Showtime's Masters of Horror. He lives in North Carolina with his family and can be found online at dalebailey.com. The story is read by our old friend Rish Outfield. Rish is a writer, actor and podcaster that can be heard as host of the Dune Steef Audio Fiction magazine, which presents genre stories with a full cast – he also performs audiobooks for Audible and occasionally becomes a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the moon is full and bright. And now, This is How You Disappear by Dale Bailey. It could start anywhere. Imagine some domestic scene. 6.15 in the morning, say... Christina at the mirror. Did you pick up the dry cleaning? I'm looking for my black skirt. You're standing there in your boxers, your left foot cocked over your pants leg. 
no dignity at all, not the position from which to wage a domestic dispute. You admit defeat without taking the field. I forgot. Christina shoots you a look. The look is eloquent on the subject of you. She puts the hairspray down. Can't you remember anything? she says. I specifically asked you to pick it up yesterday at breakfast. Now I have to iron. She storms out to find something else to wear. Nonplussed, you finish putting on your pants. The bathroom is a hair short of exquisite. His and her vanities, linoleum designed to look like tile, a toilet in a connecting chamber, a whirlpool not quite big enough for two. Artificial plants bloom in profusions of yellow, purple, white. The aesthetic, neither understated nor entirely vulgar, of the comfortably middle class, a pint-sized imitation of the McMansions that spring up like mushrooms around the lake, themselves but ostentatious reproductions of the stately old homes downtown. Yet, you've done well enough over the years. An area manager for a temp agency, two daughters, just one starting her freshman year at college, one nine years short of it, and yes, despite the present imbroglio, a wife who continues to love you. Yet the figure gazing back at you from yards of glistening mirror is anything but prepossessing. Flat brown hair retreating from your forehead on one hand, and sprouting in other, less appealing venues on the other. The fish-belly complexion of a man who spends his days at a desk under fluorescent lights. The defeated droop of a middle-aged belly. You're not deaf, though. You can hear your wife rummaging through her closet, cursing under her breath. This is your life, you think, poking your head into the bedroom. Hey, you say, would it help if I ironed for you? Hoping she'll say no. You don't really have the time. Christina emerges from the closet, somewhat mollified. She's pretty put together, even in slip and bra. She's retained her looks when you have not. In public, you always hear the unspoken question, how did he wind up with her? Not to mention the answer, also unspoken. Money. As though you've bought a marriage of twenty years. As though you had the money to do so. The things of the world come easily enough. The other things, matters of the heart, do not. And you feel a certain pride in seeing your marriage through the rough spells, when so many of your friends have not. You're a sweetheart, Christina says, pecking your cheek as she hurries past into the bathroom. Yet, when you take up the iron, you feel sad and defeated. Another day, another black skirt. You wonder how she can tell the difference. Or here. You're eleven years old, homeward bound on the bus from the first day of school, clutching in one hand the notebook your mother bought you yesterday afternoon, eighty pages, wide-ruled, a picture of a koala bear high in a eucalyptus tree on the front. The koala is terminally cute. Every time you look at it, you wonder what it would be like to stroke its fur. You've spent most of the afternoon with a pencil trying to reproduce the koala bear inside the notebook. No luck there, but the photo itself provides some solace. You're still looking at it when the bus pulls up at your stop. The doors close behind you with a pneumatic hiss. The bus pulls away in a cloud of diesel fumes. There are five of you now, four boys and a girl. You sense what's about to happen before it happens. You see it in the other boys' faces. Nice notebook, fag, one of them says. And another one, Your mommy buy that for you, you baby. And then they all take up the cry. Baby, faggot. They close upon you from three sides, while the girl, Miranda, looks on. At the last minute, you make a break for it. One of the boys, his name is Jimmy, and at other times he has been, and will be, your friend, snatches you by the shoulder and drags you to the ground. He pins you there while the other boys, twin brothers Dennis and Roy, with whom you've spent much of the summer trying to build a go-kart, tear the notebook to shreds. There are lessons here. How quickly the world can turn on you. How fleeting, how fragile its small pleasures. How important to lock up the treasures of your heart. That night... Your mother takes you to the drugstore to buy a new notebook. Kittens bat balls of yarn. Majestic tigers stare out from jungle greenery. An owl perches high in a tree, eyes wide and yellow and all-seeing. You select a notebook with a plain black cover. Tomorrow the facade of friendship will be taken up anew. 
but you understand now that the pleasant quotidian world where you have spent eleven years is but a mask. Something darker lurks beneath. You will not soon dare step out of the circle again. Or maybe it began the day they delivered you, screaming from the safety of your mother's womb. No one can say for certain when it began. Phil, the regional manager, is due today. Phil, ten years your junior, you trained him yourself not a decade since. A bluff, hearty, handsome man, hail fellow well met, with a handshake like a vice. He swings into the suite at nine, the female staff ooing and aahing, and you spend most of the morning together in your glass-encased office. You feel like a fish in a bowl, going over the numbers for the last quarter. The economy tanked six months ago. Banks failed. The stock market plunged 6,000 points. Downsizing became the watchword of the day. Phil knows this, but you explain it to him anyway. These are good times for temp agencies, Phil says. Companies downsize to reduce overhead, but the work still has to be done. Why not hire a temp and shed the burden of benefits? I'm on the street every day, you say. There's just no demand out there. Nonsense. You've just got to work a little harder. Nose out new clients. You know what I'm saying. You told me the same thing once upon a time. Dull resentment clogs your chest. How are the other offices doing? Phil seesaws his hand. Coma see, coma saw. But you've always had good numbers, he says. You've got to beat the numbers. And then, with a glance at his wristwatch, Hey, let's get some lunch. What do you say? Lunch, then. Though you have no appetite. Phil selects something slightly upscale, just north of the fare available at Applebee's or the Olive Garden. Starter salads and martinis. Gin for Phil, while you opt for vodka. More general talk about the business. By the time the entrees have arrived, the conversation has turned to family. Phil's two boys have embarked on the round of pre-adolescent activities you remember so well. T-ball and soccer, gymnastics on Wednesday afternoons. Gotta keep the little bastards busy, Phil says. Not without affection. They've got the energy of Hans. What about Susan? First year at State, you say, thinking, gotta, gotta beat, beat the, the numbers. numbers. The tuition bills are going to keep coming, that's for sure. But it's a distant worry now, buffered by the vodka warming your veins. Something to be thankful for, you suppose. What about the other one, Angela? Phil asks. Amanda. Amanda, that's right. How's little Amanda doing? She's not so little anymore, you start to say. But just then, Phil's cell phone goes off. Jay-Z, money ain't a thing. A five-minute conversation ensues. Lots of laughter and talk about the Panthers. That's right, season tickets, Phil says. What do you say to this Sunday? <laughs> More laughter, some good-natured ribbing. Sounds like a plan, he says, shutting the phone. Were you uh, saying something? he asks. Time slips its sprocket. Entire weeks, months maybe, it's hard to say, pass in the space of a breath. A single afternoon at the office spins out to the precipice of eternity. A fifteen-minute commute between your office and the house stretches into an hour. Sometimes you arrive mere minutes after you left. One night? A week later? A month? You and Christina make love. She doesn't come, and you barely manage to finish yourself. When you do, it's a single dejected spasm, a hiccup, not an orgasm. Are you okay? you ask. She touches your hand. It was nice, she says. Nice. You had met in the college library. You were heading for the checkout desk with a precarious stack of books from which you planned to plagiarize a history paper. She was coming the other way with a stack of books of her own. You can't recall what she was planning to do with them. What you do remember, like it was yesterday, is coming round the corner of the stacks, half-blind behind your tower of books, and colliding head-on with her. Books everywhere. Laughter ensues, stammered apologies. You bend forward simultaneously to pick up the books, smashing your foreheads together. 
sheet lightning erupts behind your eyes. Over coffee, you share more laughter. She has dark hair and dark eyes, eyes so dark that they're almost black in the dim light of the student center. They're like wells drilled into her soul. Faint light burns there, kindness and a penchant for amusement. She's way out of your league, but she takes you up like a lost puppy. Because she shares an apartment with three other girls, the first time you make love, three weeks later, is an exercise in stifled giggles and fumbling silence. Yet despite this, or perhaps because of it, it is the best sex you will ever have. You both finish this time, and when you do, you glimpse again that light rocking down at the center of her soul. You cling to that light in years to come. For even then, a vague insubstantiality hovers at the periphery of your vision, like the world itself is disappearing, or you are. A disturbing thought, and now, in a dark so deep that you cannot see your hand before your face, you reach out to partake of her reassuring warmth. Your hand glides across her hip. Do you remember the first time we met? You say. She stirs in her sleep. You say something? She murmurs. You lie there, staring into the dark. This is how you disappear. Twilight. Christina at the stove. Amanda at her homework at the kitchen table. She's a willowy twelve years old by then. Sixth grade, with her mother's dark eyes and hair, her mother's ready smile. Susan, too, is an echo of her mother, and now that she has gone away, a sophomore, you can hardly believe it. You feel her absence like a hollow place inside your heart. The years fly by. Amanda, too, will soon be gone, leaving you and Christina to rattle around in a suddenly too-big house. Beyond that, decline and death. How you long to cling to this moment in the kitchen, even as it slips like rain through your outstretched hands. The smell of garlic and onions simmering in olive oil. Lights in the windows. The cat curled up nose to tail upon the sofa. You've made a salad. A bed of tomatoes. Arcs of purple onions. Topped with perfect white spheres of mozzarella cheese. The leftovers will go in a plastic container. The container will go into the refrigerator. But no one will eat them. No one ever does. Soon enough, you'll scrape the remnants into the disposal, tomatoes white and soft, cheese slick with some unpleasant exudate. This is you. This is how your mind works. Why worry, Christina sometimes says, and how you long to tell her how thin the world is, how deep is the abyss. But there are no words. There are never any words. So now, in silence, you lean against the counter and thumb through a catalogue that came in the day's mail. Eddie Bauer. Everyone is handsome. Everyone is smiling. Tan and fit, they fish lakes of shimmering blue or kick back with steaming mugs of coffee at kitchen tables where a bowl of fruit glistens just so. Their clothes are perfect. From the table, Amanda says, I hate these fucking fractions. Something in you recoils at this ugly word in your lovely daughter's mouth. But Christina doesn't flinch as she stirs diced tomatoes into the pan. This is age-appropriate, she has told you. This, too, will pass. You turn a page and stare down at a blonde with a hit of crow's feet at the corners of her eyes, caught forever in the perfect moment before her beauty fades. She frolics with a golden retriever, the autumn rust sweater tied around her waist, Sells for forty nine ninety five. I'm cooking, Christina says. I can help you after dinner. I want to watch television after dinner. Amanda slams her textbook shut. Christina shrugs, unperturbed. You spend your days trying to beat your numbers from the last quarter. The slope on your spreadsheets grows ever steeper, the gap between ever more narrow. Fractions are your life. Here, let, let me, me help. help you say. Amanda turns her gaze upon you. Daddy, she says, I didn't know you were there. In your glass-enclosed office, the water level is declining. You turn in tighter circles at the bottom of the bowl, gills aflutter, as you dial into the weekly conference call. Phil goes on at length, 
praising a few area managers, urging the rest to greater effort. On CNN, the commentators talk about soft landings and double-dip recessions. The demand for labor has yet to turn around. Phil is unappeased. Screw the economy, he says. How do we turn our numbers around? Someone notes that the holiday season is approaching. That always provides a bump. A bump, Phil says. We need something longer term. Someone argues that the company should exploit new markets by recruiting a higher grade of talent from the growing pool of unemployed. You turn a glass paperweight upon your desk. Inscribed upon it are the words, Sales Leader. It's almost six years old. What, what if, if we, we cut, cut rates, rates, you say? Squeeze profits, profits to, to pump, pump up demand. demand. We could cut our rates, someone says. It might goose demand. You might be on to something, Phil says. One day, you decide not to go to work. It's not that you're sick, exactly. It's that you can't take another day of circling at the bottom of the bowl, gasping for air. You lie in bed as Christina takes her leave. She's wearing a red skirt and a frilled white blouse that accentuates her curves. You want to touch her, but you can't summon the energy to climb out of the tangled sheets. Downstairs, the garage door rattles up. Do you have your lunch? Christina asks Amanda as the door closes behind them. Then the car starts, the garage door rattles down, and you have the house to yourself. A moted shaft of sunlight lances through the window and pulls in your lap. There is so much beauty in the world, you think. You don't bother calling in. Not then. Not in the days that follow. It's somehow refreshing to have the house to yourself. You pat around in tattered gym shorts and a paint-stained T-shirt, naked feet silent on the hardwood floor. In the living room, the clock Christina gave you for your fifteenth anniversary counts down the hours. The air conditioning clears its throat and blows cool air down from the vents. You sit at the table, drinking coffee and watching the cats stalk the perimeter of your yard. You've let it go over the last few weeks. The riding lawnmower sits unused in the garage, the clippers hang from the pegboard where you placed them last fall. Outside, the lawn reverts to jungle. Wind combs shin-high grass. Strange weeds turn their faces to the sun. Hedges sprout unruly growths like uncut hair. The cat seems to like it. Christina does not. Why don't you do something about the lawn? she asks. But you have no answer that will satisfy. You shrug your shoulders, and the conversation withers on the vine. Toward midday, you don't bother with lunch. You're not hungry anyway. You take the pills that have been prescribed for you and curl up on the sofa. When you wake up, the light in the room is brightening toward mid-afternoon. You close the blinds, turn on the television, and cruise the wasteland of daytime television. Oprah and Dr. Phil, The Price is Right, Days of Our Lives, Sports Center. On the home shopping network, an enthusiastic young woman peddles a closet organizing system, shoe racks and sweater boxes, complex gantries of rubber-sheathed steel that can be customized to fit your space. Assembly is literally a snap, she says, locking two components together with a twist of her wrists. At these prices, supplies won't last, so act now, she says, and you give yourself over to a fantasy of organized closets. Shoes in neat racks, unwrinkled shirts spaced precisely on their rods. A house as sterile and perfect as the humming silence in your mind. You turn off the television and let that silence possess you. You can imagine wrapping yourself inside it like a blanket, curling up in some hidden corner and spiriting snacks out of the refrigerator, living unseen in your own house, like an intruder who has stolen in by night. Days slip by. Each evening, you slip into bed beside Christina and curl yourself into the corona of her warmth, as if you could draw from her some sustaining heat. Each morning, you wake to the impression of her body in the sheets as the sunlight climbs higher on the bedroom wall. Her perfume lingers, wafted to you as the air conditioning cycles on and off. Sometimes, you find yourself in the bathroom, fingering her flat iron and the makeup arrayed across her vanity. 
Once you even run your tongue along the moist bristles of our toothbrush, as if, through this act of clandestine intimacy, you might summon into being everything that seems to be slipping away from you. Above all, though, you avert your eyes from the mirror, for when you catch a glimpse of yourself in some unexpected reflective surface, in the wine glasses hanging upside down from their wooden racks in the dining room, or in the smoky glass that fronts the microwave, you perceive, or seem to perceive, a certain insubstantiality in your image, a blurring at the edges, or a hint of translucence, as though the light might pierce through you. You are a ghost in your own house. Amanda no longer seeks your consoling arms, or runs to greet you when she gets home from school. Christina rarely acknowledges your presence as you float through the room. Occasionally she'll smile, or reach out a hand to you as you pass, and once, as down a crackling transmission from some distant star, you hear her speak your name. Hey, she says through the static. Are you okay? But you can't find the words to answer her. Words no longer rise easily to your lips, and when they come at all, when at night you cry her name as you wake from some unsettling dream, she merely stirs, uneasy in her sleep. So the days pass, with only the yammering monotony of the television to remind you that you're in the world at all. You drink your coffee at the kitchen table. You watch the cat stalk the small creatures that scamper through the jungle outside. One day, three shirtless young men in a pickup full of lawn equipment arrive to tame it, and you watch through a window as an enormous mower races around the yard in circles, subduing the knee-high grass. What surprises you is that no one calls from the office. Not your administrative assistant, Pam. None of your salespeople. Not even Phil. Every time the phone rings, you half expect his bluff, hearty voice to come rumbling down the line. You sit in vacant apprehension of that phone call. At last, to relieve the tension, you pick up the phone and dial into the office yourself. Enterprising temps, the young man who answers the phone says. You ask to speak to the area manager, and then, after a brief interval of innocuous music, a vaguely familiar voice comes down the line. Enterprising temps, the voice says. This is... An impulse seizes you, a moment of stark terror, and you break the connection. The name evaporates in the still air, unspoken, but the voice itself lingers, half familiar, like the celebrity voiceover on some sleek automobile advertisement, a household name that eludes you without a face to hang it on. Days later, some trivial domestic errand takes you to the basement. Usually you find the cramped, half-lit mausoleum unpleasant, the dank air tainted with seepage and decay. Today, however, there's something sweet in the chill silence that unfolds you, something alluring about the gruel-thin light trickling down from a lone high window. Halfway down the steps, errand already forgotten, you pause to survey the crowded room. The detritus of more than two decades everywhere encroaches. Books molder on metal shelves, discarded sports equipment, a faded plastic tee-ball set, a pair of string-sprung tennis rackets, leans against the far wall. A skyline of overstuffed cardboard boxes splits apart to disclose sheafs of damp, swollen banking records and carefully folded baby clothes that Christina couldn't bear to part with. And though none of that history the mute relics of your entire life, bolsters you against the darkness that looms behind the world as you know it, a sense of inchoate longing fills you. So you're not surprised, when you find yourself drifting into the darkness time and again over the next few days, until finally, a week later, maybe two, how shifty and uncertain time has become, you wake to find yourself curled in the dark hollow behind the furnace. After that, you can no longer summon the energy to climb the stairs to the sunlit world above. You take frugal meals from a bag of stale tostitos, abandoned during Christina's last abortive attempt to cull the basement's junk. 
At night you curl behind the furnace and let the darkness take you away. Come morning, the sunlight creeps through that single high window to summon you back from dreamless sleep. You doze and wake, doze and wake again, through endless cycles of light and dark. And always, always, you listen. Noise from upstairs filters down to you here in the dark. The faraway thump of shoes on the hardwood floor, the screech of the telephone, the incessant chatter of the television, and something else in the faint domestic conversations that make it through the babble. The flat, effectless tones of a man's voice, half familiar. Enterprising temps, you think. This is... Then the silence of the broken connection. Whose voice, you wonder, curled up in your corner behind the furnace, the question chasing you down empty corridors of sleep. A wedge of light from above startles you awake. In backlit silhouette, the shadow of a figure descending. Words float in the air behind it. I'll just see if one's down here. Christina's voice. She slips by you in the gloom, the scent of some lemony perfume trailing in her wake. When she returns with a screwdriver, you scramble to your feet. Christina, you say. Christina, I'm here. And does she pause upon the narrow path winding through the rubbish? Does she tip her head to listen? You cannot say. You cannot say for sure. Christina, you scream. Amanda. Christina. You detect the shuffle of socks upon the hardwood floor. Nothing else. You draw in a deep breath. You bellow. Christina! Amanda! From above, only silence. During the day, you creep around the basement, hungry for something you cannot name, pausing only to refresh yourself, to press your parched lips to the damp concrete, to crack the hull of a cockroach upon your teeth, or spill the viscid poison of a wriggling black spider into your veins. Still, Voices haunt you. Amanda squeals in delight. Christina laughs deep in her throat, the way she does when she thinks something is transcendently funny. Your heart lurches. You want nothing more than to draw these women into your embrace. But the man's voice drops always down upon you like a stone. You want nothing more than silence. And so you succumb to the final temptation prying loose the wooden panel that gives upon the crawlspace. A dark square hangs black against the gloom. A smell of dry earth wafts out. From upstairs, another peal of laughter. You wriggle inside, fitting the panel into the gray square of light from the basement. Blood pulses at your temple, breath whispers in your lungs. Shrouded in silence, you drink down the darkness like oil, letting it fill up the hollow places inside you. The earth turns upon its axis. The cycle of day and night drags on. You lie down in darkness and let yourself fade away. Your skin cools as it grows translucent. Night blossoms inside you with every breath. And then, spreading your arms in the loose soil, like a child making angels in the snow, you spade down the darkness until it covers up your face. A bit of a down note to end the show on, but then again, perhaps not. Yes, the modern world has a way of dehumanising us, and it's often a struggle to find one's purpose in the proverbial grand scheme of things. However, Dale's story is a powerful reminder of the importance of being involved in everyday life, and in doing so, to divine one's own purpose. Now please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you cannot change it and you cannot sell it. 
and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will be impounded for all eternity. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. There is a beverage waiting for me on my living room table, so I will see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.